This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Aparna Gopalan, and today I will be speaking with Professor Dia Da Costa, author of the book Politicizing Creative Economy, Activism and a Hunger Called Theater, which came out with the University of Illinois Press in 2016. The book takes up the question of how, in a world where heritage, culture, creativity, and the capacity to imagine are themselves commodified, can art be harnessed for anti-capitalist agendas? At a time when scholars along all points of the political spectrum seem to agree that expressing their creativity is good for oppressed groups, whether because it makes them entrepreneurial or because it is an inherent challenge to capitalism, Theodore Costa offers a refreshingly nuanced perspective on the dangers that creative economy discourses pose for radical activism. In her multi-sided ethnography focusing on two activist theatre troops in the Indian cities of Delhi and Ahmedabad, Costa shows how these theatres of the oppressed exist alongside, fall prey to, reappropriate, and jostle with capitalist discourses and definitions of creative economy, which seek to contain and tame the cultural production of oppressed groups. The first troupe Costa discusses is the Jannati Manch, a communist-affiliated theatre group consisting mainly of middle-class activists who valorize Delhi's factory working class, albeit in a rapidly deindustrializing city, and offer a disenchanted secular critique of Hindu nationalism, albeit in a deeply religious milieu. The second group featured is Ahmedabad's Budan Theatre, run by the lowly and criminalized Chara caste, who hope that through theatre they can craft respectable livelihoods and achieve inclusion as citizens, while at the same time critiquing the violences of the Indian capitalist state. By analyzing the possibilities and shortcomings inherent in both troops' practices and political approaches, Da Costa shows how carefully and critically studying the diversity of left politics is an important part of building solidarities, which can ultimately resist fascist neoliberalism. Da Costa also shows how attending to the politics of affect and emotion can help create successful social mobilization. Rather than simply lamenting how oppressed people don't rise up, attention to affective politics can help us shape forms of activism, which actually speak to people's lives, hopes, and hungers. This book will be of interest to activists, radical educators, and scholars in fields ranging from feminist affect theory to development studies. I had the pleasure of speaking with Dia just a few minutes before. Here is the interview. I have with me today Professor Dia Da Costa, the author of Politicizing Creative Economy. Welcome to the show, Dia. 
Thank you, Aparna. Um, so as we begin, I would like to know a little bit more about your very interesting and interdisciplinary um, background and set of interests. So could you tell us a bit about how you came to be um, a sociologist of development and education and all the other various things that you are? Okay, yes, sure. Um, <clears throat> so I am... Um, I don't. I I do think of my research as quite interdisciplinary. Um, I I would say, however, that I'm kind of trained in various forms of critical social theory and sociology across three continents. And I think what makes it interdisciplinary is that sociology on three different continents is thought about very differently, um, and so the histories of the discipline are quite varied. And so I um, grew up in India and I did my undergraduate in uh, sociology in India, which um, is a combination of British sociology and anthropology. Um, and then I went to the UK University of Warwick for a sociology of education and subsequently to Cornell University for a degree in development sociology, which um, really was about critical development studies. Um, and initially, I would say I embarked on my education abroad, driven by a colonial idea that it would bring, it would allow me to bring home better ideas for development. And really, my critical development studies work, my education at Cornell made me recognize that this quest was a colonial one, um, and that, that it feeds certain kinds of dominant structures within the uh, national context. And this was also, of course, the time that Subaltern Studies was a very popular school of thought. And so uh, that certainly fed it as well. And so I was, I was very um, fortunate to have teachers who were drawing attention to those kinds of literatures, but also giving me a much stronger sense of Marxian political economy in relation to um, Subaltern Studies. And so methodologically, my work has been oriented to thinking about development in, and globalization and colonial capitalism in intersectional and transnational ways, drawing on these kinds of literatures. But also, uh, I would say from a feminist lens, um, being um, invested in kind of directly probing one's own history of privilege. Um, and that is something that has uh, kind of grown more recently. So, yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, and I'm also interested in knowing how you came to write this particular book, because um, it seems like in the past, in your first book, Development Dramas, uh, you focused much more squarely on development in Eastern India. And in this book, you seem to have moved uh, to Delhi and Ahmedabad and to focus on a different set of um, theater troops. So, what brought you to the um, conceptual apparatus and arguments in this book? And also what brought you to, you know, the locations? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, thank you for that question. So um, I was keen on thinking about West Bengal for my first book and for my dissertation because, um, well, partly just logistically, I speak Bengali and I'm from, uh, I, I, I'm from West Bengal. So, and I was keen to think about that. And I happened to find out that there was a theater troupe among agricultural workers um, that was using uh, what seemed to me to be a participatory theater method. And this is, again, a time in the 1990s where participatory methods were becoming extremely popular. And so 
I I was very keen to find out more, particularly about um, West Bengal because it's the longest democratically elected communist government at that point, and and yet what I found was that agricultural workers in West Bengal. Um, were nonetheless deeply classist and patriarchal. And so there they had kind of thought about other ways of thinking about and communicating their constructions of development um, and knowledge production and democracy uh, with this, with the theater of the oppressed methods. And that was very interesting to me. And, um, and it was interesting that they were using a technique like this to think about things like gender justice or livelihoods or, you know, right to small farmer agrarian futures because of the way in which um, the leftist government still had a certain understanding of modernization and development that they were attached to. Um, but there were also some deep um, kind of absences in development dramas, particularly, for example, how um, caste shapes development uh, politics. Uh, I didn't attend to that at all. Um, there was also, I would say, you know, the way in which most um, elite or most, I shouldn't, not elite, but most middle class um, people are socialized against a leftist politics. And my kind of uh, family construction, I wouldn't say is exactly that, but it was very sort of ambivalent about the West Bengal government and in, in my in my socialization. So combined with my own neglect of the caste issues, um, you know, I was I was finishing up development dramas um, around the time the Tata uh, moved its plans for the nano car production to from West Bengal to Gujarat, um, and I, in that context, I could certainly explain how a communist-led government was still kind of entangled in capitalist accumulation and development-based dis- development that's kind of based on dispossession. But I couldn't quite explain or didn't really understand this kind of corporate alignment with the Hindu right. And so for me, the natural um, context to think about that was Gujarat, um, because uh, my kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, my, my I would say my political coming of age, so to speak, or my coming of age anyway, was uh, in the, because it was in the 1990s, Babri Masjid was huge. It was really huge for me. I was actually on a train leaving Bombay in December 1992. And so I had a pretty visceral experience of that moment. And so it it had always been something very important to my, the puzzle, the, you know, the puzzle of what is, what is this country that I, that I live in, you know, I didn't have a way of understanding. At that time, I had the experience, I was appalled by certain things, I myself participated in a certain kind of thinking that violated my own understanding of, oh, India is secular. But I had not yet understood that Indian secularism was part of India's state project of, say, Hindu supremacy and violence, right? Likewise, with regard to development, I saw poverty all around me. 
neoliberalism and you know the liberalization in the 1990s also shaped me a lot but i hadn't quite learned how to think about inequality rather than poverty so these kinds of things had remained questions for me and so when you know when uh, 2002 happened um uh, that is the uh, the program against muslims in gujarat um and then you know combined with this kind of huge success of the gujarat model these things were kind of coming together for me and so it was not enough for me to have an understanding of a critique of west bengal and i was generally interested in what's going on with the organized left how can it be better what are the problems what are the issues and then that led me to really try to understand better what are the dominant ways in which development discourses kind of gain traction within the context of regional histories of caste of colonialism but like regional histories if that makes sense i know i'm going all over the place here but really what i'm trying to say is that going from development dramas to politicizing creative economy was my effort to understand various articulations of alternative uh constructions of development in relation to a statist construction of development Yeah that actually does make sense and I one of the things I really appreciated about your book when I first you know got it and I was looking through it was that you have a preface in which you basically ask the question that sometimes haunts us those of us who you know are um writing from the left within the left and yet critiquing parts of the left project um and you kind of way head on tackle that problem and you ask you know what what is at stake in um what might seem like nitpicking at the left when there's the right uh, rise of the hindu right and the neoliberal you know uh, fascist right across the world i think that's a question that has troubled me in the past as well and i really love how you answered it um where you basically said that that's where you know a sort of self censorship begins which makes it then um difficult to distinguish between left and right in any kind of straightforward way or um and basically you how highlighted the um how important it is that we don't stop the critique at a certain point where um we find a project to be you know politically um better i guess that that kind of that kind of your statement against the lesser evilism that you know we see a lot was was really powerful one and i really appreciated that oh thank you thank you for saying that um yeah it's been something that i've struggled to understand in in my um you know what is our political coming of age you know it's like an ongoing process but it's just something that i think uh nitpicking has been kind of a crucial way of learning for me and it actually does connect to the way in which i was trying to intervene in understanding theories of affect and um actually you know ground so i was methodologically speaking i was trying to ground trajectories of global discourses in this case creative economy um in national and regional structures and histories of violence that give them traction and one of um the things that i wanted to make a case for um was that the theories of affect that i was reading coming out of north america were were quite disembodied despite being rooted in feminist genealogies and knowledge production and so forth they were not grounded in 
local histories, their power seemed to be precisely that they were not sort of ideologically rooted and rootable and so forth. And I found this very, very troubling. And I found it almost anti-methodological. And I wanted to make a case for a very situated and embodied approach to thinking about affect. And for me, nonetheless, I wanted to make an argument that what I kept hearing people say around you know, that they have a hunger for theater, I wanted to take that seriously. Um, you know, rather than say that, oh, what does it mean to have a hunger for theater by people who are already so marginalized? I think it means that they're talking about a hunger for allowing their political vision, which is materially rooted, to to matter, you know. And I I think um, to, to not give that its due and to treat it as some somehow lesser than is is just uh, is is not does not recognize the ways in which these you know materiality is a complex thing and i think there is something to visceral materialism and so i i really felt that there was something to affect theories in terms of being able to get at a kind of radical performativity or you know the importance of the serendipitous potential of life in ways that exceed say, social reproduction ideas. and um, But at the same time, there was also something important about affect that I wanted to say was had to do with studying serendip- the serendipitous or what feels like an epiphany and thinking about um, the ways in which those who are experiencing those epiphanies, that there are structures and histories in place that effectively dissimulate the work of affect in accomplishing certain kinds of ideological and discursive regimes. And if we don't pay attention to those histories, that's a problem. And the reason why I'm giving you this theoretical and methodological piece is because I think, um, for me, something like thinking about Janam's work, I was deeply drawn to their work initially. And I I remained drawn to their work in many ways. Um, But, you know, I first met Janam around 2004, you know, and this is after the Gujarat genocide. It's after George Bush won re-election in 2004. And oh, it's around that same time. And it's it, their capacity for satire is and caricature is great. They caricatured the Hindu right. They, they, they had conviction in their voice. They, they had a fierce critique of capital. And it seemed like a gift to me. <laughs> at that time, at times that I felt so demoralized. But so affect theories and thinking about affect in grounded historical ways allowed me to recognize that the kind of depressing violence of our times made the made my capacity to attach myself to Janam with hope. You know, that kind of no, their nostalgia, their, what I feel is partly nostalgia, may, you know, seemed like hope to me at the time. And that has partly to do with the historical moment within which I encountered their work most deeply. And so I feel like it is actually really crucial to subject our feelings to scrutiny through contextualization and historical analysis and ask, you know, which which of their plays makes me cringe? Which one gives me goosebumps? Why? When am I, you know, moved to tears? And when am I not? When am I like, oh gosh, that's too melodramatic or whatever, right? To actually nitpick about these kinds of feelings and 
the uneven feelings among us. Why does someone else respond differently to the same play or to the same sentence? That matters. And if we don't nitpick about that, I think we're missing a lot. And and it's not just like some kind of thing where, you know, we're just, I'm navel gazing on my feelings. Um, it's more that I really do believe that the way in which middle classes are seduced into believing this comforting thing that, oh, there is a transgressive and transformative politics that's possible. I believe that that can be part of the structural reproduction of Hindutva and colonial capitalist ideology. And so that's why it's, I think it's particularly crucial for middle classes to subject their feelings to scrutiny, because I think our feelings are very much tied to the structural reproduction of caste violence, Hindutva, colonial capitalist ideology, because what we feel is is a pretty good gauge on um, on the pulse of some of these ideologies and violences, if that, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, and I also think that I, I also, the other thing I really appreciated, which came through a little in what you were saying now, is um, the way in which you refused to take creativity as something that's in itself emancipatory, which is a tendency we sometimes see in scholarship, is to say, okay, there's all these violent structures, there's Hindutva, you know, there's neoliberalism, and then creativity kind of stands outside of them as some as some other, and uh, and even, even culture and agency, all these things kind of stand outside of these large structures as if they're always inherently... Um, resisting, but um, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case as you begin to show. So I think that was also another really um, important thing that you brought up. But just in terms of locating us in um, the kinds of things you're looking at, um, I was really interested in the way the book began. Um, It began with this kind of story of there's this colony of performers in Delhi called the Katputli colony. And you tell us that these performers have long been heralded as the bearers of India's um, creative economy or India's culture. And at the same time, they are now being displaced from um, this this colony, which is seen as this kind of dirty slum. Um, and it needs to you know, make way for Delhi to become a world-class city. So this I found to be a very um, interesting example of the way in which these performers, um, you know, are both wanted and not wanted. And um, could you tell us a bit more about how kind of this kind of thing that you observed can help us understand what is meant by creative economy? um, And in what ways is it, you know, depoliticized, perhaps, and then what, what goes into politicizing it? One of the things uh, I'm going to connect, so the the Katputli colony, I started with that example, even though the book is not necessarily focused on that, because I think it's a, it's a really succinct um, example of how some of this works, is that here's a group of people who have moved into the Delhi context um, in the 1950s. They helped clear the dense jungle. They helped build the place. Um, um, but they are treated as a slum and then now they are being displaced so that there can be a skyscraper which the Delhi um, municipal government claims will be a skyscraper for the poor kind of thing, right? That that it, they will also, the Katputli colony people will also get part of the the housing 
part of the housing will be in there. So it's an advancement, it's progress, it's development for the poor, right? Whereas it really erases the fact that puppeteers, magicians, fire breathers, acrobats, jugglers, which is what this a community of people in Katputli colony, that's that's part of their trade. Maybe a skyscraper isn't exactly the kind of environment that they need. They need a different structure, a special structure, right, of living, of residence um, that they have built. And that rather than, so our, our, there's a certain kind of state violence that simultaneously displaces them by putting them into an environment that is assumed to be better, a skyscraper, whilst at the same time championing their cultural production, but misrecognizing that they're actually taking away their means of cultural production by reorganizing their space from what it is to um, what is presumed to be more advanced and developed kind of residence. So this is this is exactly what the creative economy kind of more broadly tends to do is that it highlights certain aspects that are considered aesthetically pleasing and aesthetically sanitized and acceptable and modern and di- displaces other kind of displaces the very um, memories, customs, cultures that it is cl- it is trying to capitalize on at the same time. Right. So I, I was am interested in this double kind of process of what the state is doing is not just saying that, oh, I, I, w- I was also trying to critique this idea that somehow this state version of creative economy is depoliticized and the one that Janam and Buddhan Theatre involved in is politicized. I think it's important not to do that. I think it's important to recognize how much collaboration, how much collective energy, how much political work goes into the production of the state versions of creative economy discourse and how deeply rooted they are in political histories. Um, I think part of my effort was to demonstrate that, um, to show that creative economy, which is to say the construction of the economy um, based on the on cultural production, but a claim that cultural production can generate revenue right, that, uh, for the state, um, it, and that it can be a feasible development option, which is the UN's terms for it, post-financial crisis of 2008. So these are the things that I think need to be kind of recognized, that, that you know, for example, Montek Singh, Aluwalia, and, uh, you know, claim that this is the next big idea, is cultural is the creative economy is the next big idea by which he's basically getting at the fact that we have a huge surplus population about 20 percent and the creative sector this is also Rajiv Sethi's claim who's who's like this cultural impresario who was in cahoots with Montek Singh Aluwalia in this planning process and basically argued that the creative economy, the creative sector can absorb the population that has been rendered surplus in the agrarian sector, right? So the idea is that this 20% of India's 1.1 billion can be absorbed by the creative economy. This is like, so India's cultural competitive advantage are the surplus population's memories, customs, 
creative capacities, individuality. So this is a very specific kind of rooting of capital in cultural production. There was always been this, we know this, right? In the colonial context, they've always used culture in certain ways. Uh, they've also censored culture in certain ways. Um, in in the national development, 1950s, 60s, um, this took a different form, and I make the argument about this in in the second in the first chapter around how they were, you know, artisanal. The artisanal poor were considered victims of national industrial development. They're going to be hurt by them. So you know, folk production, folk ways are dying. Folk cultural production is dying. So the, it was always constructed as they're the victims, and we need to save them. And so cultural production becomes part of the economy in that sense of like let's save them and then let's sell what the artisanal poor produce to and make it part of the national economy and national development process so that they're not entirely trampled upon by this process of development and modernization. The neoliberal context and the Hindutva context in collaboration is a different thing because now it's like artisanal poor are not victims. They must be seen as entrepreneurs They because they are actually going to sort of... They... They have a right to, um, they have a right to turn into property and revenue their, um, their memories, their customs, their cultural practices, and they have a right to sort of become entrepreneurs of that. And so, it's a different kind of super optimistic mode of approaching um, the artisanal, the contributions of the artisanal poor. So, I I really think it's important to think about the different kinds of political work that is being done in both cases um, by state violence to incorporate the creativity of of the of the caste or of the indigenous poor and so forth in uh, the state development process in a context of um, where you know liberalizations, um, effects have clearly been felt in terms of agrarian distress and so forth, and unemployment and so forth, and hunger. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Wait, where you, sorry, where you're basically saying you can, um, you can eat heritage and make money out of it. Yeah, yeah. Right, and I think that's, that's the thing that you really, um, that really comes, comes forth when you talk about, you know, how, the same people who are celebrated are also these kinds of urban nuisances who need to be cleared out. That that really shows us the um, kind of double standard that is inherent in picking out one aspect of the lives of the poor, which is their creativity, and um, trying to get them to leverage that while at the same time, you know, um, destroying and attacking all the other aspects of their life, namely, you know, the material conditions of their existence. And um, yeah, so I think that that you do a really good job, kind of showing us what's what's the problem with um, both the narrative of the poor as victims, but also of them as entrepreneurs, which is kind of the thing that 
has taken off recently. And especially um, when you discuss the two activist theater groups that you discuss in the book, we start to see, you know, um, other ways of understanding performance, um, uh, which are not premised upon entrepreneurship um, or this kind of globally circulating creative economy discourse. So um, just to orient our listeners, could you tell us a bit about each of the two troops that you worked with and um, just about, um, you know, who is um, who are the members, what kinds of messages are they putting out? Um, yeah, and which audiences are they trying to reach? Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. So Jana Natya Manch, uh, or Janam, which is their acronym, they're one of the most widely known uh, street theater troops in India, I would say. They began in, you know, they, they came into being in the 1970s in the aftermath of, well, they consolidated their work in the aftermath of the emergency. And they have always they're seen as the cultural wing of the Communist Party, Marx, Communist Party of India, Marxists, um, so CPM. And they are aligned with them. They have members who are longstanding members of, um, of the Communist Party of India. And they, their work has been oriented to highlighting always the critique of, of capitalism and highlighting the ways in which national development politics and processes have need uh, uh, an analysis of capitalism within it. And so they work a lot with trade unions, C2, so uh, Center of Indian Trade Unions, and they work in alignment. So they go to factories and they perform in factories and uh, they go to working class neighborhoods and perform there. They go to university campuses and perform there. So and, and to just bus stops and streets and so forth. So they perform to these these kinds of contexts um, um, driven by this need to keep alive a critique of capitalism within the Indian context. And they've done that since the 70s in this incredibly systematic way. Um, and, you know, uh, also their their um, kind of one of their co-founders, Safdar Hashmi, was um, killed in the course of a performance by Congress party goons um, uh, and you know four days or three days later they came back and finished you know did that performance again and they haven't stopped since right so there's a certain kind of aura and iconic story um, that has been very very much part of not only Janan's identity but their politics right they they are driven by a conviction that um, you cannot stop our performance. You cannot stop our critique of capitalism. And we believe in a critique of capitalism and nothing is going to stop us from that. And they have enacted that through time. Um, and, you know, that is a very powerful thing for people to witness. Uh, um, so that's that's Janam. And they um, have more recently started promoting kind of working class heritage walks and museums and concerts and so forth, which I believe is tied to 
the shifting spatial realities in the Delhi context around, you know, the closure to some degree of, of factories um, or and the decentralization of factory production um, that, that happened with liberalization. And they have been very keen on simultaneously um, maintaining a very, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? So they've, they've been very keen to continue to press um, certain kind of politics and vocabulary, right? So even as workers use different kind of vocabulary for themselves because they now see, you know, management as management, um, Janam in their plays choose an old to choose to use an older vocabulary of, you know, owners and capitalists and so forth. So even as workers are moving towards more of a neoliberal kind of vocabulary, Janam has been very clear on what kind of vocabulary it wants to continue to use to have their performance remain political as they see it. Um, but by the same token, though, they have been very keen on building these kinds of um, institutionalized forms of memory of working class history and politics. I think it's it's probably aligned with the same kind of politics that we must remember what working class politics has given us and what it has done and so, so on and so forth. Um, but the trouble with that, of course, is that it is actually very much aligned with a lot of creative economy, dominant creative economy politics with cultural districts coming up all over the place, many of which have working class museums in precisely the places where manufacturing is no longer a site of, you know, producing value, but culture is, right? So so I think there's there's that piece um, in Janam's work. Budan Theatre um, is uh, uh, the theatre troupe of an urban indigenous group called the Chara, um, in the context of Ahmedabad, which is the capital of Gujarat, um, which was one of the key laboratories of the formation of um, violent Hindu fundamentalism in the Indian context. Um, and Buddhan theater is in, so historically the, the Chara are, were designated, um, they were one of, uh, over like 180 um, odd communities that were labeled as criminal tribes by British law, by the 1871 um, Act, Criminal Tribes Act. Um, and they, um, um, so, and they, in 1952, they were denotified um, by the Indian government. So five years after Indian independence in 1947. In 1952, Nehru liberated them from this legal designation as criminal tribes. But they quickly found themselves on the habitual offenders list. So really, post-colonial law kind of reproduced the terms of colonial law. And even in police manuals to this day, they're known as bond criminals. So there, they, they continue to deal with the stigma of this kind of colonial law. And their historically their trades and their sort of um, skills have been in performance in um, in theory for some of them um, and in over I mean depending on which which of these tribes you focus on there are a range of different livelihoods but Chara histories do have to do with um, uh, both theory as well as performance and so what Budan theater is doing in in 
in um, in contemporary Gujarat is reclaiming that performance history as part of the present, so that they can get away from their um, ongoing stigma of being seen as criminal and having criminal livelihoods. So they live in Charanagar, which is seen as this den of vice, and you know they produce, uh, say, some eighty percent of people there produce liquor in a dry state. Gujarat is a dry state, so by default, their livelihood is illegal. Um, many of them participate in thievery, and so, of course, that's illegal in a uh, in the context of private property laws and so forth. So, Buddhan theater's attachment, you would think, to creative economy discourses would be much more obvious um, because they would they they are craving mainstream belonging. They want to be seen as something other than criminal, and and um, being part of legitimate cultural production, you know, legitimized by the state, I mean, and state policy uh, and cultural production by the poor, you would think that that is an ideal um, sort of uh, alignment for them. And it is. It's not that they don't in some ways gravitate towards it, but they also critique it. They are Not directly, but they just as they critique colonial capitalist state, they also critique sites of performance. So they are they. I find them much more directly critical of the ways in which power informs performance spaces itself and their own spaces than Janam is. Janam is less um, internally critical in in terms of its public performances of its of its uh, of its work so that i would say is one of the key differences and i think that that's a very important one especially when you think back to what i said about you know why should we nitpick about the internal differences among us well because it matters because we are different um, within and because we cannot build a understanding of solidarity or a, a solidarity politics among the left without nitpicking and understanding the value of the differences among us. Mm, yes, thank you for that. Um, and I actually, the next thing I'm going to kind of talk about is uh, very much related to how you ended. So um, as I was trying to process the takeaways from the book, you know, I one thing that I started thinking about, um, or one way of, you know, understanding the takeaways, um, I thought that, um, and you can kind of tell me if this is near the mark or expand upon this or disagree with it. But um, it seemed like what you're arguing was that um, Janam and Buddhan theater are, are offering two different um, ways of resisting. Um, in the case of Janam, the method of resistance is kind of um, driven by a strict, you know, ideology, which is kind of this anti-capitalist ideology. And um, that's all, that's, while that's their strength, that's also their danger because um, that makes Janam be um, relatively more blind to caste and religion-based oppressions um, in favor of like a strict kind of working class valorization. Um, and on the other hand, um, Buddhan theaters form of resistance is one in which, um, you know, it's one of those forms of resistance in which being alive and being visible and being in the mainstream are themselves acts of transgression for a group which um, is supposed to kind of be invisible, offstage and illegal. And yet the danger there is that in favor of kind of keeping visible 
um, encountering caste violence, um, there is the absence of a very kind of strict class ideology or the absence of kind of guarding against, you know, incorporative politics, which could then lead to perpetuation of state power, capitalist power, creative economies power, etc. And this kind of made me think of the broader divide, you know, within the Indian left, which has concerned so many people. And it's still something that it's not something that's been resolved, um, which, is, which is basically the divide between, you know, anti-caste and anti-capitalist politics, you know, and that's been such a fundamental problem to the to, to solidarity. Um, and so... I was wondering if this is the kind of reading that you would want people to take away from the book and then what would be kind of the ways that this book offers us to um, move past this impasse if there is indeed this impasse. Mm-hmm. I actually, okay, let me backtrack a bit. There's so much in what you said. I have to remind myself um, some of it. But um, so I actually think that so Janam's work, yes, it is about an anti-capitalist critique. Um, but part of what I was trying to say is that, yes, their attention to caste as a result, caste oppression is, you know, not as, not at all as sound as it could be. Although, um, yeah, uh, but I don't think that it they disregard, they also have a critique of religious oppression, my issue with the critique of religious oppression is that they're often laughing at the enemy. They're laughing at the way in which the Hindu right it, um, instrumentalizes religion towards its own violent ends, thereby showing the collusion of um, corporate capitalism and the Hindu right. Now, that is crucial. That's a very crucial critique for to to lay out there but i think in a context like india if you're not going to take religion seriously as something more than a site of oppression then we are very subject to missing um that just as the left has a need for justice and has a conception of ethics and justice that often is not rooted in religion. Those who are rooted in religion have a need for conception, have a need and conception of justice and ethics that is rooted in religion, that involves something higher than themselves, right? And I think that the left is just not very great with giving religion its due. So it's not that they critique, that they don't have, that Janam doesn't have a critique of religious oppression. I, I just, I'm not sure how well they do with understanding religion itself. And I say this hugely as an internal critique of myself because I'm very much part of that. I'm very, very much part of that. I I don't have a sense of how to think of ethics and um, social justice in relation to a religion that I'm rooted in. So this is this is a challenge to myself that I see reflected in Janam's work. Um, if that if that makes sense, um, in terms of Buddhan theater, yes, there's a assimilative kind of politics at work in their um, in in what they're doing. But I will I would absolutely not say that it's not anti capitalist. I would say that it's anti it is anti capitalist, uh, e- even though so because because um, of their trade in uh, in 
thieving. Now, even though they're trying to go from being seen as a criminal community to being seen as a creative community, that does not mean that they have ever denied or disavowed their history and their livelihoods in thieving. And that it was very interesting to me. It was interesting to me because this is a community that's very marginalized and very subject to all kinds of and constant police violence, constant police raids and so forth. It's interesting to me because they could easily disavow it or just at least rhetorically, but they don't. They very much acknowledge it and they even claim it. They talk about how it takes a certain skill and, you know, that you have to kind of know performance in some ways in order to be a good thief. You know, so I I think there is a disregard for private property in that sense because it's attached to an understanding of state criminality and and capital capitalism's criminality. And so I think there is a there is a very different kind of anti-capitalism in that. Now, mainstream belonging has to do with citizenship, has to do with constitutional guarantees, which they don't have as DNTs, as denotified tribals. They do not have constitutional guarantees, which is something that they continue to fight for. Mainstream belonging then is, of course, aligned with the broader structure of a capitalist state and a caste state. But I don't think that that by default means that they are that they don't have a critique of capitalism. And I think that that's an important distinction to make. And with that said, for example, I want to go back to the point about how creative economy, um, you know, Janam is also making use of not indirect terms, but, you know, with, they're also making stri- they're making use of the kinds of initiatives that are happening in the Indian context, in the NGO circles or in the cultural production circles or in the cultural sort of sector in, in because of creative economy um, processes and policies and so forth, when they, you know, try to figure out what are the management best practices for theater companies, you know, and Janam becomes the word, last word on it, or not last word on it, but part of a, an important discussion on that. Or what what ways can... Um, grassroots theater companies build capacity capacity building you know this kind of language this kind of vocabulary and contributing to it based on their histories I think is part of that I also think that things like working class museums are part of that like if so they are not outside of that and this is what I'm trying to do in the book is to show that it is not quite so simple as saying this is an anti-capitalist critique, Janam is, and then this is an anti-caste critique, Budan Theatre is, and the never the twain shall meet. There are points of difference, very deep difference. There are points of connection, um, very solid connection. We need to recognize the complexity of both and why each makes the choices that each makes um, in the context of the uneven um, uh, structures that they like the uneven positions that they occupy within the structures of hierarchy and violence and inequality in the Indian context. Because if we don't have that kind of analysis of the very varied um, kinds of politics that we see around us um, on the left, then we are um, sort of not going to appreciate what can be learned from each context to build towards a broader whole. So I don't think it can be flattened as anti-caste versus anti-capitalist because there is an anti-capitalist 
critique within the anti-caste. And it is actually less that, oh, this is a working class politics and that is a caste politics so much as that is a caste politics that recognizes that no working class is without a caste. There is no conception of working class out there that is not rooted in some conception of caste. It might just be that the trade union kind of factory-based working class just simply doesn't foreground caste because it tends to be more dominant. So it sounds like the impasses are less obvious or less the ones that we would, you know, that would come to mind, obviously, and yet perhaps just as intractable and, and requiring analysis and effort to, um, if not overcome them, at least come to know them properly so that solidarity can become possible. Yeah, I think I do believe that there is there is um, a need for solidarity. It's not that these troops don't work together on occasion. It's not that the other troops or other political organizations that um, would likewise work at loggerheads in some ways are also collaborating uh, with each other at other points. But I think that the 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 ways in which they differ, the ways in which there is the the points of contention, the what remains intractable needs to not be treated uh, in flat terms because that amounts to a denial and a dismissal and oh it's just that's just anti-class politics as as opposed to recognizing well actually it's also working class politics. We just need to learn how to recognize a different way of thinking about working class too. You know, the Brahminical kind of left needs to think about what we associate with a working class politics and why within the haters politics does not strike us as a working class politics, if that makes sense. Like, how come it's not part of our ability to, you know, to see it as such? So I think we, I think um, those who've been in, uh, the position to label the do- dominant and organized left and to label the working class politics as such. We're the ones who need to do the work of rethinking what we have and have not been open to and what we have and have not been able to see as a class politics. Right. And what appears to be, um, I guess, cultural and what appears to be structural in terms of oppression. Great. Thank you for that answer. I think this book has such, you know, important implications for understanding so many things, um, activism, not the very, not the least. Um, but as we were talking before we started recording, um, you've come away since you wrote the book, you know, you've come forward in terms of your thinking and in terms of what you're working on now. You wrote this book in 2016. So where are you at intellectually, politically? What are you working on? Um, and what are things that you, you know, have moved beyond what you thought before? And what are things that you think you were like exactly right about? Yeah, thank you for that question, Aparna, because... Um I, uh, I I think that even though, you know, for example, the last chapter of the book um, really does in some ways focus on Buddhan theater's um, um, experience of violence in the context of Gujarat, and it highlights the caste violence of the Patel and Sindhi communities to affect a certain kind of, and produce a certain kind of um, collaboration of 
Hindutva and capitalist power in that context. I, I really don't think that the book as a whole did enough to um, treat caste violence and caste power in structural terms. I think caste primarily in the book comes through as, you know, I'm studying a marginalized people who are affected by caste and colonial terms of violence, but I think the focus is mostly on what they are doing to address that rather than um, highlighting enough of the work that caste does to produce this violence. And so, I mean, I subsequently, I, I wrote a piece on called Eating Heritage, Caste Colonialism and Adivasi Creativity for the journal Cultural Studies, which came out recently. And in that, I'm trying to address some of that neglect and looking back on what makes this really primarily, you know, how do we understand that relationship between caste and colonial violence? And I'm trying to address certain um, critiques that have come out um, by Anastasia Pilyevsky, for example, who argues that, you know, we need to not think of criminal tribes as an invent or as a colonial invention. We need to go further back in the past. And that is super important. And I think that is a crucial thing because of this caste history. But part of the problem with her argument is that she's, she's basically using that idea that criminal tribes is not a colonial invention to argue that that really the activism of the middle class to that that this kind of critique of criminal tribes as colonial invention is is a invention of the middle class activists who are trying to uplift these you know denotified tribals and i think that is a problem because i think that uh, the those who don't have constitutional guarantees don't have it because of the ways in which um, pre-colonial caste formations collaborated with or were consolidated by colonial um, administration and knowledge production. And so that that has generated in the post-colonial casteist context an ongoing kind of violence. And to say that any critique of the criminal tribe work is sort of middle-class activism that has inherited a colonial legacy of you know, missionary upliftment and so forth, missionary work to uplift the poor and so forth. I think that really sort of, again, flattens what is going on. So I'm trying to work now on thinking more closely about the relationship of caste and colonialism. And however, I'm doing it in the context of um, South Asians in Canada as well, because I'm interested in thinking about complicity. And this is a newish kind of... in focus, um, not entirely new, but, you know, thinking in terms of our responsibility and um, our complicity uh, in, in reproducing structures of caste and colonial violence, because one of the things that we see around us in the North American context is that we, South Asians, circulate in the North American context as racialized people, but not as caste-bearing, bearing caste power and privilege and that erases some of, again, the relationship between caste and colonialism that explains our presence here and that explains how we relate to racial politics as well. And so it's much more focused on the North American context, but it is not um, disconnected from the challenge of thinking about the relationship of caste and colonialism. Wonderful. That sounds great. I really look forward to 
you know, following your work and seeing how it evolves. And it certainly has helped me as an activist and a scholar to, um, you know, really think hard about all these different relationships that um, are often flattened and um, to even examine things like affect and things that just pass unnoticed, um, to look closely at them in order to build a you know, a politics for justice. So thank you so much for writing this book and thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you, Aparna. Thank you for inviting me to do this. 